Thank you for downloading the Pacific Rim Pro Wrestling Podcast. The podcast takes you from Seattle and Tokyo at all points throughout history. From the Seattle area, my name is Jim Valley, longtime wrestling fan, broadcaster. I do some stuff with uh, the Cauliflower Alley Club. We do the official Cauliflower Alley Club podcast, which you can find at caulifloweralleyclub.org. I've done some stuff with the Torch. I've been around a little bit, but nothing like my tag team partner in crime as we head across the Pacific Rim, the Pacific Ocean to Tokyo, Japan, with in what I consider to be Japan's leading wrestling journalist and historian, Fumi Saito. Hello, Jim. How are you? I'm doing great. Hello from How Tokyo, everybody. Good, good. <laughs> yeah. Still recovering. You know, I'm, I'm still recovering from uh, Cauliflower Alley. It was a pretty busy week. Okay. Oh, it looks good. Yeah, I read a lot of things on the internet and on oh, what was on Facebook, and other people did a lot of things. Oh, on the Twitter too, and great. Yeah, it was, you know, it ran, conference. It, it ran really well. There's some really. Really neat things uh, like helping Brickhouse Brown and him Brickhouse being up Browns. there and giving such an yes, emotional sir. speech. It was, it was very mm-hmm. touching. It's you know it's what uh, the Cauliflower Alley Club is all about, helping a lot of wrestlers oh, who kind of you know fall by the People from different era. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And also uh, Shawn Michaels, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Shawn Waltman, the original clique, you know, being you know honored. That was a big surprise Award. when they when they mm-hmm. honored Shawn Michaels. I mean, that was kind of a big deal, I think. But then to have the surprise of Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and Shawn, My- Shawn Waltman to show up to uh, introduce Shawn Michaels was was very nice. And they were, mm-hmm. you know, they were certainly as catty as they can be, like they always are, a little smirky. But I thought that they were also very <laughs> respectful at the same time. So it was it was a good time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, because you know, also they were heels, so you know yeah. you gotta act like a heel like all days, and uh, and also they have a class. Exactly. And they're yeah, they're big superstar from closer to current era, you know, nineties into two thousands, you know. Yeah. So but, I guess uh, the, the big news, yeah. the big news right now is the All In yeah. Show, which is all going to show. be in the Chicago area uh, around uh, Labor Day yep. weekend. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, they've got the star cast. It looks like they're going to have some sort of fan event with some podcasters working sort of a podcast row and then also autograph sessions and a video game tournament and uh, kind of a fan fest mm-hmm. thing that mm-hmm, Conrad mm-hmm. Thompson is putting on in connection with All In. But all the, the tickets apparently sold out within 30 minutes or so. Yeah, there were some there were some uh, scalpers that got some tickets. Major still, scalpers. Still pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. are your thoughts on that? That uh, talent like um, the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega and maybe Okada and others are, are able to draw such a crowd that right? matches yeah. announced. Yeah, and then also the traditional part there, uh, bring back NWA World Heavyweight title and uh, have Cody Rose do the title match, NWA World Heavyweight title. So, so they cover some historical segment, you know, aspect of it. And also, yeah, I guess it tells a lot of things about the current market that, yes, um, wrestling fans are wanting to have something other than WWE products, probably. And uh, independent, you know, fan base really strong. Uh, something not as strong as WWE market, you know, but uh, yes, there are market for wrestling fans or independent companies as such. And yeah, this will, you know, you can uh, talk a lot of different aspects of this 
current state of business, too. And, uh, For me, yeah, I think it, it, one of the brilliant yeah. parts about the marketing of Cody and the Young Bucks, and to a degree, I think, Kenny Omega, Kenny Omega in the yeah. United States in particular, is that they are able to get their fan base to identify with them. You know, all mm. in. It's like a cause. It's not just a show. Mm. It's a cause. And I think a lot of the people who have gotten tickets and are going to be there are very invested in this group of talent and they identify with them as their guys. Mm. Mm. You know, we yeah, had a. Just like, yeah, yeah. We had a, we had a question. Milt already written, yeah, wrote about it that this, some of the talents were really undervalued you know and uh people didn't really you know took you know take too seriously but now the result is somewhat out there yes there's a market for these people and we've seen it with um you know the hot topic shirts and the bullet club shirts and you and i have talked about this before in the past about the popularity the uh, the appearance of popularity of the young bucks and the bullet club in the united states versus versus in japan mm, yeah kenny omega in particular well i mean just just kind of rephrase what, we, what we've talked about when it comes to the bullet club in japan versus the bullet club in the united states the perceptions yeah yeah but um, the ones who knows anything at, at all about bullet club it's the hardcore fan base though basically very hardcore. They do also watch all the WWE television, and they're WWE fans too. But the the group, the hardcore fans, wanting more, you know, the different products. Of course, See, it's not like a territory days where you had 25 different company going at the same time, you know. And uh, it's it's impossible now. But uh, we they will always want alternative. There is no alternative right now, right? But I, I guess what I'm asking you is about the the Bullet Club and its status in Japan. I mean, could... Yeah. It seems like the wave has sort of crashed a little bit for the Bullet Club in Japan, but here in the United States, it's still very, very strong, obviously. Mm -hmm. yeah, kind, of, kind of like NWO 20 years ago. It was super hot in America first. Then that moved to, you know, Japan using some of the Japanese talent like Masahiro Chono or Great Muta being involved in between. And there was NWO faction and storyline going within New Japan Company and television. So it kind of translated, you know, or transferred. So there's some delay in time. And right now, Bullet Club isn't the biggest faction or the hottest item. You know, Los Ingobernables is a little, um, I guess, harder. You know, as an uh, as a like a current item in in New Japan's ring. Yeah, does that make any sense? Yeah, no, I think I think it makes sense. I mean, we've also seen yeah. other members of the Bullet Club uh, do some expansion and try to help run some shows. For example, like in Australia. Yeah, I suppose yes, that too, that too, but uh, the. Guys, you know, we remember a Japanese fan remember as original Bolico. They are basically gone too. Half of them, you know, Prince David now, Finn, Finn Balor, you know, the Carl Anderson, the Luke Garrows, the you know those half the you know you know original guys are gone. You know, 
Yeah, in, in, they're in WWE with different name. So I guess the logo, bullet, you know, bullet club still means something, much like NWO T-shirt and baseball caps, you know. Yeah, and, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. So that should last a little, you know, a little longer, you know, and they can as long as they can use it. Oh, they should use this as a business tool too, too, you know. Do you think there's any um, issues with the fact that New Japan is running the San Francisco show and it hasn't sold out yet versus the, the, the show that's going to be featuring New Japan talent that, that has sold out? Do you think we've talked about how New Japan doesn't see it as competition, but would, would this situation, you think, maybe change some minds? Well, the, but the, the, basically these two shows in all-in show in Chicago in September and Cal Palace, California show are treated as two different deal, two different issue. You know, if they were marketed as two shows going, you know, so people's perception would have been different. That the San Francisco show has not been marketed as big as this all-in show. Or they, you know, Cody Rose and Young Bucks been marketing this all-in show in September, what, for the past six months or so already? And uh, when, it's when, San Francisco, yeah, San Francisco show is not as much, I mean, advertised as much. Yeah. Yeah. And given People the booking of New know. Japan, they can't announce matches yet. Oh, no, that, I guess not. I mean, as far as the storyline and the... the yeah, things that take place in Japanese ring and they, they cannot announce what's going to be in San Francisco. That, yeah, that, that holds back a little bit, you know. But this is wrestling. But September show, All In show and Cal Palace show, they're not treated equally, you know. So not marketed equally. People, a lot of people still don't even know about Cal Palace show at this point. So, uh, so it's not marketed by the same person either, you know. Well, I was always curious when when New Japan talent, whether it's they like, for example, over WrestleMania weekend when Cody and uh, Kenny Omega fought the first time, uh, whatever yeah. they do, like New, New Japan matches outside of Japan, do they have to check in with Gato to make sure that they're not interfering with any of his plans? In yeah, I guess yeah, I guess that they they have to, you know, they have to, but at the same time. American side have more freedom than we think, I think. You know, they're not going to interfere with Japanese storyline or anything, but uh, what they're doing in the state side is what they're doing in the state side. As long as that doesn't interfere with or the violates or whatever, you know, Japanese basic storyline for the New Japan company. Either way, I think it's an awesome time to be a wrestling fan right now. I mean, my hat's off to everybody involved with All In. Yeah, I think it's yeah. great what's happening with New Japan and even WWE. It's doing well. So yeah, this, but it this was, is a very exciting yeah, you time. You have to point out the fact that the All, All In show, uh, we cannot prove it, but uh, a lot of things will come out in the next day or two or next week or two that, you know, who really actually bought All In ticket, all 10,000 of them the major scalper what they're saying that would only elevate the price of the ticket and it will get and it will make harder for or you know regular regular audience to purchase the ticket because by having those people purchase ticket and resell it in in their valley that only gonna what uh, escalate you know elevate the uh, the price and uh, it's not really good for the market, I don't uh, think. Maybe. I mean, I remember at WrestleMania 19, 
when I was yeah. there in Seattle that the scalpers, no one was buying the tickets and the scalpers were, were dropping the price. Uh, at the end, yeah. Yeah, on the last minute. day and things. So I guess it would depend on how fans play it, if the price, mm-hmm. how the market's going to go for these all-in tickets, if they're going to go up or down. Right. Between now and September, I think can happen. Yeah. 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 Or they could announce, you know, major card. It's already sold out, I guess, so uh, they can't do anything about it. But they will be announcing who's on the card and you know, what what would be the, you know, the theme or, yeah, the actual lineup or the additional names that they got announce, you know. But I think it's brilliant, uh, the causation yeah. marketing and the identity marketing to get these fans invested in this product the way they have. It's it's pretty brilliant. Mm. Okay, okay. Hey, it's good that they good to have alternative, you know, that's a positive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But absolutely. if they are going to handle it, see if it's one shot deal, that's not gonna make that much difference in the whole whole market of it, you know. So if they do it for the second time or something, or well, the first time for first show hasn't even happened, so we couldn't talk about it. But uh, if there's gonna be an alternative in the in market that they are going to have to have another show after this. Oh, they're go- oh, for you don't sell 10,000 tickets and not have another show. There will be right, right. another yeah. show and it wouldn't surprise me if maybe that's the one that they pulled the big guns out on to make it even more special with, you know, if CM Punk can wrestle, you know, Punk doesn't do this show because they're already sold out. It doesn't make any sense, but that right. first and also the next show, advertising another UFC, you yeah, know, match, so. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, what? there's more things in Yeah, it's good. Though. There's something you can, you know, anticipate, huh? So why don't we talk about the other big news with New Japan yeah. announcing its new, new president. New president. Yeah, his name is Harold George May. Um, he's he's a 54-year-old marketing, you know, marketing person. Um, he was a president of Takara Tami Company. Takara Tami is actually a real huge toy company, okay? Um, like uh, your you know Mattel or you know like you oh know, yeah we had Tommy yeah. toys here I remember them as a kid oh you do or oh, Takara yeah he was a president of Takara CEO between 2015 to 2017 well this year last year then yeah it's pretty current you know before that he was with Japan Coca Cola company. And also, he, before that, uh, he bounced off a lot of companies, but he started out in Japan as a, um, I think, uh, vice president of Heineken Japan back in, like, in 1990. Yeah. So he's got a, he's got quite the resume. I think so, yeah, yeah. And Kidani, you know, Takaki Kidani, the owner of New Japan Pro Wrestling, is the one who appointed him. Um, it's marketing friends, right? It's, it's, it's nothing much to do with professional wrestling genre, but uh, he was this new guy May was brought in, to, I think, to further market the New Japan Pro Wrestling world, like WWE Network. Yeah, he uh, he are there. You know, he's here to make N- NJPW world like the WWE Network, you know, for the international market. They want to have one million subscribers, you know, something like that. Now, had you heard about any of this before it was announced? Had you heard about any discussions? No, 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 no. I don't know much, you know, anything more than, you know, you would know, you know, it's just, uh, 
It was reported not a sports page or wrestling magazine, but the news came on more like uh, your economy page, you know, in newspaper. In now, business I, page. Business I've heard some people speculate that given his background with the toy company, that maybe he might be able to market uh, New Japan toys or uh, video games or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's the plan. Um, Kidani comes from the, the trading card and game card or download games, that kind of background. And that's what they do these two have in common. Takara Tami, you know, toy company, he marketed, you know, the, the dolls and stuff. And the Coca-Cola company, what he accomplished was, you know, um, Coca-Cola Zero. Zero is... Um, Diet Coke, actually. Yeah. But the, the term Diet Coke does not really go well in Japan. He's also the key. I think he was the one who came up with the name Coca-Cola Zero. And then all of a sudden, it's a popular product. No. And so he's done that. So it's marketable. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, marketing is um, his, uh, I guess that's what he does. And... Uh, yeah. What about making New Japan? Yeah. I mean, given this guy came from Coca-Cola and toys and everything, I mean, he's he probably Heineken. didn't come cheap, I would imagine. He probably has a pretty high salary. Ah, I guess so, yeah. And also, right now in Japan, like uh, the company like um, Nissan, you know, Datsun Nissan, it has a foreign um, international president, or even the McDonald's, McDonald's Japan. It has um, American president in Japan. And so it's not unusual to have international you know, marketing person as president in Japan now. It's almost like a trend, you know? I guess, yeah, for some reason. But somebody's going to be translating this person, right? You know, I don't know how much Japanese, you know, he speaks. You know, I thought I read he's fluent in Japanese and English. Because he's been there for like 30 years. Yeah, yeah, but uh, it would be really hard to have company com conversation and having like a speech in front of people with fluent Japanese. Some people are more comfortable having your professional, you know, interpreter right next to you, you know, like that uh, Nissan's president does or McDonald's president does, you know. But this person I, I never met, and uh, he hasn't had press conference yet, and already talk about town as far as wrestling goes. But uh, I'm sure that he will be facing that the whole new community of this pro wrestling, you know, not just pro wrestling, but the pro wrestling media, the fan base, uh, the, the the people he has to deal with and he had never you know dealt with before, and it'll be very interesting, you know. Uh, he won't media. be assigned until June first. First day is June 1st. Speaking of media, didn't you meet with uh, somebody with New Japan? <laughs> yeah, uh, Tanahashi last week. Yeah, I thought I was thinking it was a podcast, and I was told he was I was going to be on his podcast. But when I, when I went in there, it was a table for two kind of you know interview, uh, two part series, part one and part two. They'll put our interview on New Japan's uh, official website and a smartphone website in probably like in a week. I'm not writing it, you know. 
Um, so will uh, will fans be able to uh, access that in America? I think so. Okay. Or the, I don't know if Google Translate will, <laughs> will translate well or not, you know, but uh, it will be a two-part series, and uh, it was a really good interview. You know, we sat and just chatted, you know, and then just one hour went like this, and, uh, yeah, I told him, you know, I'd be watching him since two, year 2000. He, um, his debut match was October, October of 1999. He was still 22. And believe it or not, he did have Young Lion's uniform, you know, short black hair, black trunks, tights with nothing on, black wrestling shoes. You know, just like your Young Lion, New Japan, you know, the, the young boys. Dark black short hair, black tights, black wrestling boots, nothing on it. That's your uniform, right? Now, he got hurt. Uh, elbow or something, and uh, he was off, you know, sidelined for six months or so. Then uh, when he came back, he started, you know, he grew his hair long and put some blonde streak on it, and he came back with this wine color, red, um, really shiny trunks and white wrestling boots. And uh, um, usually, you don't change your costume or your, you know, you grow your hair out until you come back from like your America tour or a tour to Mexico, you'd be gone for like a, you know six to 10 months or a year or two sometimes, you'd be gone. And then come back as a star, right? He skipped all that on his own. And uh, he started second year on, he started dressing like a star, you know, costume. I asked about asked him about it. He said, did you ask anybody? He said, no, I didn't even ask. We did some, nobody made case out of it. Toshi was still there at the time. People like Ken Kisaseki was still there, and all those seniors were still in, you know, in within with, with New Japan Company. But Tanahashi, young 22-year-old Tanahashi, went ahead and you know grew his hair out and changed his costume on his own. Nobody said a thing about it. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. So, did you guys talk yeah. primarily about his career? Uh, no, I we didn't really get, get, get in touch. You know, we had like a you know ten minutes or so. You know, just hey, we sat down and uh, we kind of started talking. But uh, after you know tapes, you know, started rec recording, we were pretty. You know, we spoke pretty for professionally for about an hour. And there was a one you know in, like a interesting topic that the, he and I wanted to go over was a, I think it was a two thousand one, Scott Hall, Scott Hall made his you know tour with New Japan after WWC and before he made, uh, he came back for WWE's WrestleMania. He had two or three tours on his own, Scott Hall. There was a single match between Scott Hall and 22-year-old young Tanahashi. Very interesting, right? Are you with me? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm here. Yeah, single match, Scott Hall against Young Lion, not quite Young Lion, but the second year, 23-year-old Tanahashi had a single match. And um, what was interesting was that Scott Hall decided on his own to put him over. Schoolboy, one, two, three. You know, just told referee to count it, you know. And then and, uh, Tanahashi, you know, beats, you know, veteran Scott Hall. And... Uh, they thought something, you know, went wrong, and wrestlers came out of dressing room and started watching the match. 
you know. No, he wasn't. Scott Hall ran his own angle. And then uh, that night, Scott Hall told me, this guy, meaning Tanahashi, this guy's money. I discovered him. This guy's money. And just 10 years later, he was right. Is that a good story? Scott Hall's pretty smart. So the plan with Scott Hall was supposed to beat Tanahashi. Of course, like uh, like uh, you beat him like 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 a, like a squash almost, because this is a second year guy, you know, and the second match, you know, like a it's a regular single match and a third match, a fourth match from the, the you know uh, of the night, and uh, nobody was really paying attention, and uh, Scott Hall was going to run his own angle. I'm gonna put this guy over, huge, much like a one to three kid kind of thing. Yeah, but uh, Scott. What what was the point? Was Scott Hall knew Tanahashi will be a huge star. He knew right away. You know, this guy, is money, is what he was saying. It was interesting. And uh, Tanahashi knew. You know, uh, remember this. You know, real well. And uh, we started talking. So. Um... What did Tanahashi yeah. think of that? Oh, it was like a, it was a huge superstar rub. And also, he was really happy that, uh, you know, Scott Hall kind of recognized something in him. And, uh, yeah, and then the uh, company was surprised that it wasn't mad. But, uh, you know, like, Scott Hall started running his own angle, you know, like putting some young guy over in the match. And the uh, company... You know, company has every right to get, you know, get angry. So what the hell are you doing, right? But no, they weren't. And they're happy that uh, Scott Hall recognized some new talents. I'm, I'm going to do something with this kid. This this kid, you, you may see it, you may not see it, but this kid will be a huge deal, big deal. So let me do something. That was like that. And, uh, yeah, something like this in wrestling should happen more often, I think. Because everything is so designed and calculated and everything is so produced. Well, you know, like this is WWE now, right? Um, like Terry Funk would say, since when, since when somebody make a wrestling match for you? You know, it was wrestlers before, you know? So is your whole conversation with Tanahashi just a retrospective on, on his career? Yeah, and then also how I felt that the current IWGP champion is um, Okada, of course, right? He's a champion. And the hottest, uh, like, a, you know, like a real hottest superstar right now, yeah, Naito, yeah. But to me, the main guy, main guy, like a, your, you know, like a, your superstar guy for the, the, the New Japan company as a whole, to me, Tanahashi is always will be the centerpiece is what I told him well I hope everyone gets a chance to see that that's going to be coming to it's not going to be on New Japan World it's going to be on the New Japan website yeah yeah but uh, somebody can translate it you know and on the website too website and the smartphone site it's the same thing um, you can read that on the official website and also, you can read that from your, you know, iPhone. We'll have to, we'll have I, to check that yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. I have. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I will. I'll be doing his um, podcast before too long. 
you know. They, the company didn't know, you know, how, what to expect. So uh, they made it into interview, you know, part one and part two first. If people like it, you know, I might go back. How's that? <laughs> there you go. So <laughs> they got to feel you out. They had to make sure they trust you, right? I'm not sure they fool me. He's kind of shady. Nah, no, not that. It's just, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm just giving you a hard time. Yeah, but the, New Japan have a lot of fan base, you know, like, uh, didn't I tell you like there are a group of fans you know New Japan that uh, the current New Japan fans is crazy about New Japan products and the show and everything but only been watching what two years or so these new fan base hasn't they didn't even watch Nakamura in New Japan anymore you know it's wow two, in two years that, that makes that much difference there are New Japan fans who did not watch Shinsuke Nakamura when he was here. Isn't that interesting or what? You know, the, the, you can tell by the resurgence, you know, the crowds they draw and everything. They're clearly, I mean, that's what every product has to do. You've got to create new fans. Otherwise, yeah, reinventing. Yeah, eventually you're going to wither and die. Yeah, that is why that the... Um, they know Chris Jericho is a huge superstar in America and all over the world, but they that Chris Jericho is a name they're learning now. You know, that guy who came in, you know, beat up Naito. Yeah, yeah, that guy, that guy, you know. Chris Jericho, knowing, they know is a huge name, but yet they still have to study his history of it, you know. It's interesting, you know. Yeah. New fans always have a lot to learn, right? If you learn more about it, you know, you enjoy it a lot more, too. So, well, we do have a couple of questions before we uh, uh, yeah, get yeah. going here. Let me, so we do have a question here from uh, Guy Bogard. He wants to know what is or was more popular in Japan, Bullet Club, LIJ, or NWO? And he used the question NWO in the hashtag AskFumi. So what do you think? <laughs> what do you think is the most I, popular faction can... ever in Japan? Can I uh, give you like a real old man's answer? I would say Ishingun was the most popular faction. You know, Ishingun as in Riki Choshu, Elmo Hamaguchi, Killer Khan, sometimes Masa Saito, Kuniaki Kobayashi, Yoshiaki Yatsu, you know, those uh, Ishing, original Ishingun from 80s. That was a faction. Actually, that was a little group that made this faction things very, you know, well, it's more trend or unique, or that's um, not just babyface side and the big heel side in two groups, but like they created a faction within heel group. So sometimes two heel group, you know, fought one another, and sometimes you know Ishingun against New Japan's, you know, um, regular crew um, or the American Gaijin crew. So there was like all like a three or four different groups within the company. That made faction that much more interesting. So I'd say yes, Ishingun in the 80s created all. If there was no Ishingun, Rikicho Shuji Ishingun, there wouldn't be NWO Japan. Or there's there are some groups like a Raising Staff or Blonde Outlaws, uh, you know, the small international group or you know smaller faction here and there, here and there. But the Ishingun pretty much started the faction thing eight guys or something cool guys 
could be babyface one night, could be healed another night. He basically heals, but the cool bunch of cool guys, you know. Got another question the, from Rick, uh, yeah, Richard. Yeah, Ricky Joshu set the trend. He did the uh, yes. hashtag Ask Fumi, and he yeah. just. I think we've talked about this before. You can go back in the archives and find the show on uh, Giant Baba or Inoki. But ah. just just briefly, he wants to know the root of the rivalry between Inoki and Baba and why they couldn't work together. Oh, wow. And not just two different companies, you know, New Japan and Old Japan. Antonio Inoki's New Japan and Jan Papa's Old Japan. But it was T- TV Asahi, Channel 10. It always backed New Japan. And Channel 4, Nippon TV, NTV, always backed Old Japan's Baba's company. So it was like a battle between two, two network channels who never worked, you know. And also... TV Asahi had and always had an exclusive contract on top New Japan talents, whereas NTV, Channel 4, Nippon TV had exclusive contract with Baba or Jumbo or Tenru, or those people. They could not appear on other guys' channels. So they wouldn't work. There was a, there was a Tokyo Dome card. Jumbo, Tsuruta, and Yatsu you know, came, and, came and worked New Japan show Tokyo Dome. They did not air it. You know, when New Japan guys worked Wrestling Summit with, you know, combined show 1990, WWE, New Japan, All Japan, the Channel 4 aired the entire show, but they cut the the part New Japan wrestler worked. So they could not work. But also it part was, of the reason is both guy, each guy wanted to be number one. Both, guy wanted to, both yeah, guys wanted to be the right. boss. Uh, yeah, there were two bosses, yes, in Japanese wrestling, always, yes. Yeah, that's like, um, kind of like, see, if there was a boxing, there's like a governing body, right? WBC or IBF or, you know, WBA or stuff like that. But in wrestling, they would want to, you know, look like they are the governing body. New Japan always wanted to be the number one company and all Japan was always number one company. So there are two number one companies, figure of speech. Yeah. That's interesting because that's why Japanese fan got somewhat smart. Wow, there are going to be two wrestling company no matter what, you know, and two different group wrestlers, two different group of champions, or two different group of Americans even. That's why it was exciting when Abdullah the Butcher switched from Old Japan to New Japan. Stan Hansen switched from New Japan to Old Japan. When Bruiser Brody switched from Old Japan to New Japan, it was, it was a really exciting thing. Yeah. So, so it was not work. The other question is um, about touring. The You know, the way WWE is constantly on tour. Where the 52 Japanese... weeks a year. Oh, that's so hard. So why do you, yeah. why do you think that is? Why does why do uh, the Japanese just do tours and take breaks, versus you know the philosophy of WWE or Jim Crockett Promotions or WCW where it's constantly touring? Yeah, all year long, huh? I don't know why, but the Japanese company, well they used they used to you know run longer tour like eight week tour or seven week tour. Right right now, or like the last twenty years or so, three week tour here, four week tour here, three week tour. You know, five weeks tour here, there, but they always have three to you know four weeks completely off. But TV is not off. 
you know, during those in the three week tour, four week tour, they take five, you know, TV shows, six TV shows. So they will, they'll be on TV all year long, no? But uh, yeah, um, that's how they always ran tours. They still had 150 shows or so a year, though. You know, it's, it's just different scheduling. Is it for, WWE, for health reasons too to give people? Ah, uh, no, it was. You can say it was health reason, but uh, for some reason, that's how they always ran tours. You know, and then give wrestlers, you know, two to three weeks off completely. But when they have two, two to three weeks off now, they'll be traveling to England. They'll be traveling to America. They'll be traveling. You know, some of the rest will be traveling to Mexico and you know, pick up a few dates. Uh, so um, it works in different, you know, it works differently with different wrestlers or different companies. But they do have this certain method, Japanese tours, like three weeks here, four weeks here, two weeks off, then another three-week tour, something like that, you know. They end up having 150 shows or so a year. Yeah. Major companies, major companies, New Japan and Old Japan only. Um, Big Japan and other companies, they actually run less shows than that you know but still have 100 shows a year so uh Making this sense? weekend that we're recording yeah. marks yes. the uh the what is it the 18th anniversary of uh, jumbo saruta's death it was may 13th so it was actually yesterday yeah 19 years ago january jan baba died and the following year year 2000 may jumbo died it was a real big thing because it really tells you the end of an era See, you know, Giant Baba's passing was really, you know, a huge thing here in Japan. But only one year later, 47-year-old Jumbo Tsuru, you know, Tsuru passed. And it was kind of shocking, you know. Baba was 61, but uh, Jumbo Tsuru was a very private person that he did not really announce much details about his cancer. You know, the word was out, you know. And before he actually retired, there was like a five, six, seven year period. He was battling illness and make comeback for like a two or three matches a year. And no more single match. He always worked six man tag team match or some tag team matches against Japanese opponents. But uh, uh, yeah, all in all, his like uh, peak career was over, you know, years before that. But uh, um, Jumbo did not really announce the details of illness that the people didn't know how how far or how bad that was. And uh, only one year after Baba died, wow, you know, I, you know, people thought he was he became professor at the Portland, you know. And uh, but next time we hear, you know hear, you know hear about him, he's like, wow, he's sick. And uh, yeah, he was really private about a lot of things that the people didn't know, you know, the illness. And uh, it was really shocking. It was 18 years ago. People do talk about Jumbo even today. Yeah, because he was a huge, huge superstar. Yeah. A huge superstar. I grew up watching. And, uh, we uh, yeah. when uh, Mrs. Baba died, we talked about uh, that the Babas did not have children, but in many ways, Jumbo was like a son to them. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh yeah, and also size, giant Baba and Jumbo Tsuruda, 
like a, yeah, you know, you see the the words giant Baba, big superstar. It was like his son Jumbo Tsuruda. It just matches so well, right? What do you think he's uh, most famous for? Jumbo? Yeah. Oh, it was interesting because Jumbo was superstar from the day one. See, he Jabba didn't Jan Baba did not debut him. See, after Munich Olympic 1972, he signed with All Japan right away. Then Baba sent Jumbo Tsuruda to Amarillo, Texas, to learn from the Funks. So he was. He, it was like sort of hiding, you know, for one year. He came, you know, came back to Japan 10 months later, rookie, but already put, you know, being put in the main event position. And uh, first televised match, second televised match. Okay. First week was Jumbo Tsuru against Moose Morawski, you know, single match. He go over with, you know, double arm suplex, huge. Then second week, he was already in main event. Jan Baba, Jumbo Tsuru against Dorian Funk. Um, international tag team title match at, from Sumo Palace. He was in main event already. So he was a star from the day one. Very interesting, you know? Because other Japanese stars, they make you, you know, grow in front of you, you know, from the, the mid card to semi card to important match into main event and title match and you know, people witness all this progress. But for Jumbo Tsuda, yes, he was putting in main event position pretty much right away. I mean, do, is also, he known size, primarily he, for, for having been the, he was the first triple crown champion, wasn't he? He was, yes, first triple crown champion. Um, triple crown, international heavyweight title, PWF, uh, heavyweight title, Pacific Wrestling Federation, and UN, United National Heavyweight Champion from LA. So three different single championship belt was there. Then people always scratch their head, which one's more important title, right? Then uh, to make this three singles championship belt into one and make a like undisputed champion. Jumbo Tsura uh, had international belt, and Stan Hansen had UN and PWF, PWF belt. So two two belts against one. Then they did that in January of 1990 to uh, yeah uh, com- to make this belt into one. Yes, Jumbo was the first Triple Crown champion. Actually, this program of making three championships into one started like two years previously, and he was actually Bruiser Brody. Bruiser Brody had international heavyweight title, and Tenru and other people had, you know, UN and PWF title. They were on this process of making these three championships into one. And Brody was involved, you know, in the very first process. Then he was gone. Yeah, it's been 30 years now. Come, yeah, come this July. We will be talking about Bruiser Brody a lot. Um, Weeks to come, huh? Let's do it. So uh, were you, you know, you were in Minnesota. Were you in Minnesota when he won the AWA or in Tokyo when he won the AWA title? Uh, I was in Minnesota still. Uh, okay. Did you see he when won Rick the Martel t- won the title from him? Uh, I was there at the ringside. St. Paul? Yeah. 
yeah, I was I was still taking pictures from the ringside. Yes, as a photographer, young photographer, St. Paul Civic Center, Jumbo against Rick Marte. Of course, I was there. Yeah, it was interesting. Actually, he had two long, you know, one month long tour twice in, in AW, as a AWA champion. He came in, you know, and defended title uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, the, you know, Milwaukee, the Denver. The, you know, he even went up to Montreal and went to Chicago. Uh, yeah, a lot of cities he stopped and defended in AWA title. That was a big thing. Yeah. And actually, think- he, yeah, and then Jumbo used to stop at this Japanese restaurant where I was washing dishes in summer of 1984. <laughs> now, he didn't have much to do during the afternoon, I guess, until he goes to show. I guess he decided to sit in this Japanese restaurant and spend all afternoon drinking tea. I was really young, 22-year-old guy, you know, washing dishes at the, I was college student, you know, but, uh, you know, you you wash dishes right sometimes you know and uh yeah so i um i came out and can i sit with you sir and uh, we just sat and chatted all afternoon it happened a few times it was very interesting did the uh i was senior yeah i was senior in college and uh you know about to graduate from college and i really wanted to work for wrestling managing full-time but a lot of people told me not to you know and i wasn't so sure yet and i asked jumbo's opinion it was interesting you know uh, i asked master saito the same question you know like i want to be a wrestling magazine writer and editor and this and that and i'm graduating from college and um, I'm, I'm gonna start working for a wrestling company you know full-time you know and what was interesting was though of all people Masa Saito told me to get a get a real job <laughs> yeah <laughs> and Jumbo Tsuda told me yeah do it do it meaning at the become wrestling in a magazine editor you know you only you only live once kind of thing you know the coming from party type you know Masa Saito is like a, hey go get a real job Wow, I thought he was uh, who would tell me to uh, be wrestling magazine editor, and Jumbo would be the one to be telling me, you know, to get a new, get a real job, right? But it was, you know, opposite. Jumbo was the one who told me to, yeah, if you want to do this, do this, you know. And uh, so I became wrestling magazine editor. And uh, yeah, those. Advice were very important to me, you know, both Masa Saito and Jumbo Tsuruda back in 1984. Summer, spring. Obviously, you must have uh, covered Jumbo after 1984 when you moved on with your career. Did he remember giving you that advice later? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. They were pretty private about it, though, you know, but uh, he was always nice to me, yes. You know, that kid from Minneapolis, you know, and... uh, Oh, in Japan, things are busy, so you don't get to sit down and talk to him. Well, I did have an interview, and I wrote some interview with Jumbo years later, but, uh, you know, things are, you know, kind of rather busy, and if you run into each other in the backstage, you know, you say just, hey, hello, you know, and then how are you, and that's about it, right? So didn't have a chance to actually sit down and talk to him for like an hour or two, you know. I didn't have a chance again, but uh, yeah, uh, Jumbo's always nice to me. Yeah. Um, 
obviously Baba bought did, him. I did spend a lot more time with Masa. Obviously, uh, Baba bought uh, Saruta's AWA title reign. Did that uh, yeah. improve Jumbo's standing in the wrestling world? I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think so because he was clearly number two, right? Jumbo, you know, Jan Baba was always number one and also a single champion. And he was NWA champion, you know, a couple, you know, three times too. That that's why I think uh, Jan Baba choose AWA World Heavyweight Title instead. He, uh, later on, it changed a little bit, but because Masa got it. But uh, at the time, Jumbo Truta was the only Japanese wrestler ever to hold AWA World Heavyweight Title, and actually went to states and defended title and had the like U.S. tour. You know, and that made him special. And also, that was a time that uh, he switched his trunks from blue and red, and you know, stars on it, and uh, blue, red, you know, ring boots, and all the flashy color. That was a time he changed his costume: black tights and black wrestling boots. We talked about the young lion thing today, but it's opposite. All Japan ring when you become serious. Um, main guy character you won't you won't be wearing that you know cartoon color costume that the jumbo switched from blue red to black trunks nothing on and black wrestling boots nothing on and uh, he became yeah a very single competitor yes and baba stepped down to a mid card at the same time yeah interesting huh so where do you think you put uh, Jumbo Saruta on the list of uh, most influential Japanese wrestlers? Ever? Oh, among top 10 for sure. Among top 10. Or oh, top 5. Because you always have to have what? Ricky Doza and Giant Baba and Antonio Inoki. That occupies three, right? Right. Then it varies, you know. A lot of people want to put Ricky Choshu in there. You know, older fans want to put Jumbo Tsuruta in there. All the fans want to put Fujinami in there. And the 90s fans want to put Keiji Muto in there. You want to put Hashimoto in there. You want to put Misawa in there. You want to put Kobashi in there. Maybe Onita and Maeda. That's already 10. <laughs> so it's really hard, you know. And I always say, you know, it's, it's impossible to compare apple and orange, right? You know, so... Yeah, think... But still, Jumbo, top five most influential wrestler in Japanese wrestling history. Yes. Is he the and best also, big man of all time? He only did babyface all his career and never heel, huh? But I mean, he was, what was he? He was 6'5? Six, 6'6, six, 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 yeah, 6'6 six, six ish. Uh, actually, a Brody size. Right. Yeah. So yeah. do you think that Jumbo is the best big man wrestler ever? Oh, probably, yeah, better worker than Baba. But this is, you have to give Baba credit because if you watch 1968 Baba's footage, he's fast, he's quick, he's technical, he's actually a good athlete. But the people don't remember Baba like that, you know, older, you know, slow guy, right? But uh, yes, Jumbo overall as an athlete. And Bruiser Brody told me one time that uh, Jumbo was so far ahead of everybody. It was exactly what Brody told me. Jumbo was so far ahead of everybody, was saying that. Even ahead of Inoki, he was saying. He, Brody would put, put Jumbo through above Antonio Inoki. 
because he had single match against both, right? And uh, Brody felt Jumbo was better than anybody. But easy to work with. Same, you know, same height, same weight, almost same age. Brody was a little older. But, uh, yeah. See, I was doing more research on Brody recently and that uh, he was already like 28 when he debuted. Did you know that? Really? Yeah, Brody did not wrestle until he was end of 27 years old or 28. Lot of the lot of the older magazine or book or even observer say he started out in Oklahoma, Oklahoma area nineteen seventy three. But I cannot find any records that much that you know, if anybody can help me who's listening to this show, who can, you know, give me you know Brody's match result from year to you know, nineteen seventy three, great. But uh in official debut of Bruiser Brody, it was April of 1974 at the Dallas Sportatorium. They ran gimmick where, you know, that the fans from the stand challenge wrestler. You know that gimmick sometimes, don't you? Oh, yeah. A fan. You know, King Kong Bundy did the same thing. You know, quite a few wrestlers did that. You, you know, this wrestler, big guy, was sitting in the front row and challenging the wrestler, you know. And uh, uh, Bruiser, 28-year-old Bruiser Brody, April of 1974 at the Sportatorium, challenged Bob Roop. That was the official debut match of Bruiser Brody. So let's say he debuted 1974 and died 1988. He only wrestled, what, 14 years altogether? Well, only was fine, but, you know, like 14 years. It seemed a lot longer than he was, you know, he, he seemed be around a lot longer but uh, he was he only wrestled 14 years or so altogether he didn't even start until he was 28 is that interesting well i guess he did have a career for a while as a journalist didn't he yeah and then also football players you know um like uh not a yeah washington redskins nfl but uh, he was like uh he was cut in spring camp but he bounced around minor leagues you know, in uh, San Antonio, that uh, even uh, played for a team in Mexico for one season. He, after he moved from I, you know, Michigan to Iowa State, you know, college, they moved to West Texas, where you know, Dusty Rose, the Terry Funk, the, you know, Bobby Duncan, the, all those you know, future wrestling superstars were playing football. He was in that you know, football team, but. Uh, he did not start, you know, until he was 28, 28, 27, 28. And was so many people that they, they claim that he trained Brody, right? Um, who trained Brody? Bill Watts didn't. Uh, Joe Blanchard, he didn't. A little bit, but they didn't like each other, so Joe Blanchard didn't really train him. Um, Fritz von Erich, Fritz von Erich was godfather of Bruiser Brody, basically, but he did not retrain him. Who trained? They say Bronk Lubick. What? And it's, but they were like in 60s at the time. And there was a claim that the Bob, Cowboy Bob Orton took bump for him during the training. So maybe 
um, Cowboy Bob Orton had something to do with Brody's training too. There's a lot more to you have to do. You know, we have to do research on Bruiser Brody's real career. <laughs> Am I talking too much? No, that's why we have the show, so we can <laughs> glean your knowledge. Yeah, Bruiser, yeah, we, we, yeah, we got to learn more about Bruiser Brody. You know, this is the perfect time, thirty yeah. years from his passing, and also, yeah. Um, yeah, people still talking about him. I do, you know, he's such a huge superstar, and he was gone. You know, he was while he was still at his prime. You know. And we'll uh, have more on uh, yes. Bruiser Brody and some special shows coming up uh, in yes. the near future. Not to spoil yeah. anything, but yes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because people love you know Bruiser Brody. I love Bruiser Brody to this day, and also newer fan base should learn about a person, Bruiser Brody, wrestler Bruiser Brody. You know, he was so influential, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, let's do that. Um, then also, I would like to cover Adrian Adonis this this year, too. Yeah, he passed away in 1988 as well. Yeah, just two weeks or so before Bruce Brody passed. And you and, knew Adrian uh, Adonis. Yeah, yeah. Right when he had a great attitude, he said he was in Japan in a couple months before that. And he said he told me that uh, he's got to start picking up, you know, dates and tour from smaller company so he went to new brunswick you know summer territory in you know eastern canada that's where he died you know what do you call it um that uh, the night the sun never goes down in a in a, in a hemisphere there yeah he during was, well, he summer was, was he was he touring the maritimes yeah maritimes and yeah it was like a bright daylight 24 hours and the sun hit the drivers you know, eyes, and uh, he got dropped from the cliff and went into the big lake, you know, the whole car. And uh, what a way to go, you know? Yeah, it's very, very sad. Yeah, it would be real scary, you know, that off the cliff into the lake, you know, the night that the sun goes, never goes down, it's like, a, ah, it's a real, you know, like, mm. We got to talk about that, you know. Well, we will, and we'll talk about uh, more things coming up. So uh, be sure to follow us on social media. Where can they follow you, Fumi? Yes, um, on Twitter, Fumihiko Dayo, F U M I H I K O D A Y O. Fumihiko Dayo, that means it's Fumi, Fumihiko. And also, you can find me, uh, Fumi Saito, on Facebook also. And you can find me on Twitter at Jim Valley and also Jim Valley on uh, Facebook as well. And we should have some uh, very special shows coming up in the very yes. near future. But I'm sworn to secrecy because Fumi won't let me. So, but it'll be a surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're working on it. Yeah, it'll be great. So until next time. So long from Tokyo. Thank you very much.